0: Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Julian Chapman. He has over three decades of experience engaging teams and organizations from small groups to thousands of employees, building their leadership capabilities. His leadership knowledge is augmented by his 30 plus years. Um, One of his uh, dual careers was that of a member of the Canadian Armed Forces, from which he retired in 2014 at the rank of Brigadier General. He joined Forest and Company in 2002, taking over as the president of the company in 2015. So extensive experience as an executive and as a high-ranking military officer. Um, Known as a pioneer of thinking in the workplace, Julian is a master trainer in effective intelligence, and that is a trademark term, which he brings to organizations through keynote addresses or assisting individuals and teams in solving problems through effective thinking. His thoughts on leadership, organizational development and accountability have been published in Human Resources Reporter Magazine, CPA Bottom Line Newspaper and HR Professional Magazine. In his spare time, Julian is a member of the board of directors of the Wounded Warriors Project, a charitable foundation that provides support for veterans focusing on those suffering from PTSD. He co-founded a charitable foundation for the Canadian Rangers of Northern Ontario that primarily supports at-risk Aboriginal youth. He holds a bachelor's degree from the University of Toronto and is a graduate of the Canadian Army Command and Staff College and the Canadian Forces College and an alumnus of the U.S. Army War College. Julian, thank you so much for, for agreeing to have this conversation with me. Um, I want to talk about your book and uh, talk about your career. And talk about your life. Um, so, Great. welcome. Thank you very much for coming on.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Dave. I really appreciate this uh, this opportunity, and uh, it should be an interesting an interesting journey in and of itself, right?
0: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, I, I like to always start off the interviews by getting a sense of you know the guest's background and. And early life. So, let's uh, let's start off with where you were born and raised, and you know what what life was like for you growing up. Well, it's uh, I, I
1: don't usually talk about this, so uh, so I'm a little bashful on this because um, it's not something that uh, that one gets an opportunity to talk about very often. So, um, uh, I I grew up in uh, in sort of northeastern of Toronto, Ontario, Canada uh, in a small, small communities, uh, farming communities, that sort of thing. Um, I have no siblings. Um, my mother was, uh, was born in Scotland and my father, uh, is a Torontonian, but, uh, my mother passed away when I was seven years old and my dad didn't know what on earth to do with me. And, uh, and so, uh, so he would send me off to, to, uh, to family and, and friends and then, or, keep me working as as hard as he could uh to keep things going um his uh his career was he was a filmmaker and uh he won an academy award in 1968 so he was quite a famous filmmaker but uh, his uh his film career kind of took a nosedive after the passing of my mother but uh uh you know he he tried all sorts of things and was very active in uh, all sorts of innovative projects so I guess that's a very long-winded way of explaining that uh, that I grew up as sort of an independent kind of kid, um, and much to the chagrin of my father, I had this interest in military history. As you can probably see, well behind me, I've got all sorts of the volumes that my wife throws uh, tells me I can't have back in the in the house, so they're here in my office at work. But um, and that led me to an interest in the military, and so. As a young 17-year-old, I joined up as a private soldier uh, for a summer job. Uh, the Canadian Forces has a has a uh, system of uh, where they they take on kids and, uh, and and enroll them in the Canadian Forces, and and I just stayed. I, I never managed to escape, so I was a, I was a joiner for for life, or for 34 years, at any rate. Uh, so, um, so that's kind of the the backdrop, I suppose, uh, from from that standpoint. And I think uh, my my early days as a, as a young private soldier, uh, I, I I looked at the leadership around me, and I I and I, I think in my arrogance of youth. I sort of thought, "Hey, I can do better than that." So, uh, so I decided. Uh, I decided after a few years of being in the ranks, being a, a private to corporal, I would, uh, I would apply for my commission to become an officer. Boy, did I learn uh, a lot along the way. Most notably that, I, you know, I'm I made all the mistakes uh, in the book all the way along. So, uh, it was the school of hard knocks as one as one moves up. So that that started me on the path of uh, of leadership development and and uh, as i like to refer to it the, the journey of leadership development so I,
0: I had a conversation with an individual um it was very early on uh when i first started this podcast and he and i talked about uh the canadian armed forces he was a member of the sea cadets i was a member of the sea cadets uh, here in the United States and um, was involved with the foreign exchange program with the Canadian armed forces and, and the United States Navy, where um, the, I I ended up going to Nova Scotia and, and being on that base for a couple of weeks. And I guess a bunch of your cadets came down to uh, Florida and, and enjoyed the summer heat down here (laughs) but um yeah it was uh that was an interesting experience and i i thought it was pretty interesting that a lot of the the cadets that were my age were planning their full enlistment and they were actually getting paid i believe do they get paid at 16 17 years old uh, well, certainly, seventeen
1: is when you sort of transition into the forces, writ large, from the cadets. I, I didn't manage to do the cadet program because where I was living, I was living in a farming community and on a farm, so there wasn't any cadets nearby. I had to travel sixty miles a, a night to go and parade with my unit, kind of thing, uh, in order to in order to serve. Um, but yes, we the you know once you join. Writ they, you do get paid and i think they do pay the the cadets in the summer the summer cadets they pay them uh, a certain stipend over the summer um so you would have been in uh cornwallis likely and uh yes and exactly i lived for 2 years down the road from there um uh, working in a uh, peacekeeping training center um over the years so uh so i know the, the that corner of the world quite well so
0: you Mentioned you made a lot of the mistakes along the way, and uh, I mean, I, I think anybody that's really developed as a leader, looking back, can view a lot of their decisions and and their leadership faux pas and and go, ah, and if I had only known, you know. Um, but for for those young leaders that might be listening. What are some of the the lessons that you learned early on that could possibly help help these individuals?
1: Well, um, I mean, I think there's there's a multitude of uh, of lessons uh, lessons of the the mistakes that I've made, and hopefully, I actually learned from some of them rather than just <laughs> you know making the mistake and then repeating it several times over. That's probably the biggest one: is when you make a mistake, you make a mistake. Uh, you know, perfectionism is the sure route to unhappiness. And we can't get it perfect. And particularly when you deal with human beings, uh, the way human beings are, and the nature of human beings is, is that uh, you can't get it perfect. And so don't try to get it perfect. And that certainly was one of the the mistakes that i made as a as a young junior officer in particular you know i thought i had to be perfect at everything and you know the fastest runner and the strongest guy and you know the best shot and all these sort of things so understanding what your strengths and limitations are uh what i refer to that is i refer to that as authentic leadership having a true sense of oneself and how one uh, how one sort of fits in uh i'm reminded a lot of the the phrase and it certainly happened to me in the in the twilight of my military career of uh, you know I would go to events like the uh, the the baseball game of the Blue Jays and be the you know the the guy who stands out there on the on the mound and everybody pays huge you know is clapping and cheering and standing up and all that sort of nonsense and that old adage uh, from the Roman Empire uh, where the where the slave would stand behind the emperor and the, the emperor would receive all these a, this adulation from the crowd and the, the the role of the slave was to whisper in his ear remember thou art mortal and that not to allow your hubris and your arrogance and all of those things to get away from you to recognize that uh, that you have uh, a most sacrosanct and sacred bond between the leader and the led, and, and never to get too far ahead of yourself and 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 too heady in your perspective on things, and and I'm, so I guess from the standpoint of being authentic, the other part is is to be servant, and lots of people have written about servant leadership, and often they include the two of them, uh, the the idea that that Their success is your success, is most important, and that that it's about bringing them along, and that you're you're only as good as your last man or woman, as we say. You know, when you uh, when you take that platoon out for a run, or you or you're doing presentations to the executive in your civilian career, you're only as good as what you put the team out there to do, and and it's you can't go and say, well, it was because of them. It's because of me. I haven't built them and I haven't grown them and I have not transformed them. And so I, I suppose the, the third element of Beyond Authentic Servant is transformational. Recognize that nobody comes perfectly formed. There is no such thing as the as the perfect direct report out there. I try to tell this to my clients all the time that the, the perfect employee is not there. You have to build them, you have to transform them. And, and you ha- that means you have to engage with them and you have to truly lead them. So, so being authentic, being servant and being transformational, I think are, are kind of the, the three foundations that, that every leader needs to understand. But I would say that the other part is that one of the things I learned along the way is, is that uh, we tend to denigrate management. So it's all about leadership. And the two actually go hand in glove. They go hand in hand, management and leadership. And so you can't be great in your role if you're not a good manager and also a good leader. And recognize that management and leadership represent the tension between task and people. So the management function is very much a task function. The leadership function is very much a people function. And to be truly effective, you have to bring those two things together. So, that's now I'm just spouting. So,
0: well, it's interesting that you you started along that path. Uh, the title of your book, the the managerial leadership journey, is um, one of the the topics that I want to dive into is how you you combine them uh, to you know get. A synergistic effect, essentially. Um, but there was there was one of the things that you said uh, that that transformational leadership. Um, you alluded to it, but I, I wanted to highlight it. That many times young leaders and I and I know that I was like this as a young fire officer having this zero defects mentality, like you're expecting your people to know everything and deliver when you ask them to do something or you give them an order to get this done. And when they don't deliver exactly how you, you know, imagined it, um, you know, holding them accountable for something that you actually failed to do by really developing them so that they could deliver what you were asking of them, you know? Uh, It's very true. And,
1: and we, uh, we distinguish accountability and responsibility as two different things. And this may be a bit of a, a long winded way to, to lead into this, but responsibility is a personal feeling of obligation and accountability is the component of the relationship between the manager and the direct report. So I feel responsible um, is is really important in organizations, but what's equally important and if not more important is the notion of accountability and that relationship between the manager and the direct report or the leader and the lead. And all too often we rely purely on people's sense of responsibility. And so we get really angry when they don't do it right. But in accountability, I turn around and I look at it and go, what did I do wrong? that set the conditions for that individual to not be as successful as i'd hoped they'd be yeah. and it's really about turning that around and redescribing it in such a way to to understand that it's actually me not them and and so you hit the nail on the head and and you'd appreciate that you know coming from fire service right i mean it's accountability is critical everybody's got to know their job you can't have people running around doing other people's jobs in a fire
0: yeah the, uh, the foresting company, the, the company that you are the, the president of, um, I, I would like to hear maybe some of the journey uh, along, along the way from starting there and then taking over as the president. And then uh, maybe go into what effective intelligence is and And how you use that in in your organization
1: yeah so just as part of my journey with Foresting Company, I came to Foresting Company and uh, I done a lot of leadership development over the years but uh but it sort of started at the lower levels and and I think one of the things that we found in Foresting Company is, is that you can do a great job of of you know, pumping sunshine into people and getting them ready to go and go out and lead. And th- in reality, the issues that that happen in organizations is, is that you can spend all that time preparing the leaders, but if you don't look at the systemic issues inside the organization, what ends up happening is, is those leaders run smack into a wall. They run into a wall where the systems, the culture, the lack of strategy, the lack of structure, all of these sort of things get in the way of them being truly great leaders. You can only go so far as a great leader uh, as you're you know, as standing around in a crumbling house, right? And it's just, there's no way you can, you can survive that. So the journey, the journey of myself and, and Forest and Company has been that move from leadership development, which was training initially, to facilitating teams, to coaching people, to now much more consulting. And since we took over Foresting Company in 2015, most of my energy goes to the C-suite and consulting around how do you set the strategy, define the structure, and then enable the leaders to then deliver on the strategy by leading their people in a sound house, in a house that is that is well designed and and has has all the right walls and all the girders and the roof and all of those sort of things to really enable the organization to flourish. As I like to say, our job is to, is to create great places where people can work that also deliver the strategy. And that great places for people to work is that people side, and the strategy is the task side. So again, it's that tension between management and leadership. Um, so that's, that, that's the, the, uh, the travels of uh, and the journey of a foresting company has been into that realm. And so I, I've written a bit about that in the book, the, the nature of that. Um, and it's very important now in the post-COVID era. So how are we going to set ourselves up in the post-COVID era, whenever that post-COVID era is? Actually, I guess yeah. I, I'm implying that we're in it, but uh, <laughs> you never know from day to day. Yeah. Um, so, so that's that's been our journey. But what has interested me, and and I, I about oh, it's over twenty years ago, I was introduced to this thing called effective intelligence, which is how do you think through the work that you have. So we all make decisions all day long, but very few people have actually been taught how to make a decision. And that has an impact, because if you don't have a framework for how you make your decisions, you may lack confidence in your decisions. If you can't then explain to your boss how you made the decision, then your boss lacks confidence in the decisions because they can't see it. Think back to grade 11 mathematics, you never got the full marks for coming up with the answer. You had to show your work. Right. So explaining to people how to think through these things is critical. So we spend a lot of time working with our clients around their thinking and and providing them with frameworks for how to how to make a decision and decisions are different than planning, just as strategy is different from planning, just as creativity is different from innovation. So these are all the elements of what we work with our clients on, which is how do you think through this either as an individual or as a team? So that kind of supercharges the house by by getting good thinking, good solid thinking going on inside the house. Uh, for the organization and for the betterment of everyone, so so that's the effective intelligence side of, uh, or the effective thinking side that uh, that we focus on.
0: And and do you talk about that in your book, the managerial leadership journey? I
1: I, I do, and I talk about the importance of thinking because after all, uh, our paychecks are actually for our thinking. Very few of us are doing things with our hands in this day and age, right? We're not. Uh, it's about how do i use my whole self in order to do something and the vast majority of our paycheck is for that yet we don't focus on how we think we don't teach people how to think we go to school it doesn't teach us how to think it teaches us what to think
0: yeah
1: and so so we're it's a it's a, that's another journey it's probably volume 2 of the, you know it's the next book is a lot more into the thinking realm But it's critical and and at the highest level of the organization all the way down are different levels of thinking that are required. And different levels of complexity of thinking so so that's all tied into the book as well and understanding the nature of levels of work and the nature of how do you how do you stratify an organization.
0: Yeah, You've mentioned strategy a couple of times. how do you how do you work with an organization? Uh, well, is part of your role to help them develop a strategy?
1: Well, what we term it is we term it or help them to articulate their strategy. Because in a lot of cases, the organization actually knows what they want to be when they grow up. They've just never really articulated it. And, and so we help them to articulate, whether it's vision, mission, values, the standard ones, uh, what, uh, what are the strategic drivers of their business? What is their unique selling proposition? What is their unique sustainable competitive advantage in the market? What is their, their core objectives? What is the organizational spine? All of these things are, are part of strategy decisions. And what we try to do is we try to delineate strategy because you use the term strategy and you ask two people, what do they mean by strategy? And you get two different answers, maybe even three different answers actually. So with us, strategy is very much about what do we want to be as opposed to the process to get somewhere? Because organizations are often not clear on what they want to be. They spend time doing strategic planning which is moving from where we are now to where we're going to go, but they never have that end state, or they often don't have that end state. And they spend too much time um, and not to uh, not to decry consultants because after all, I am one. Um, but uh, they spend too much time creating these, you know these magnificent things that sit on the wall. Nobody pays any attention to them after they've been done, and they don't live the strategy at all. And so it's about how do you integrate that strategy into the day-to-day for the organization to be what it wants to be? And so that's that's the kind of work that, that we do, but it's about that articulation. So as part of the thinking, as part of this effective intelligence, it's about asking the right questions to unlock the answers to what the strategy of the organization needs to be so we don't do what many of the strategy firms do which is gathering all sorts of data and comparing them against this company or that company it's about what does the organization really want to be and sometimes that means you've got to bring in the board you've got to bring in the owners you know depending on the nature of ownership of the business but you have to you you have to have that conversation about what do we really want to be And ironically enough, it's the same for each and every one of us too. We have to decide what we want to be. Far too often, we go through our lives without clarity of what we want to be. You know, I always wanted to be an astronaut. I I learned very quickly that, uh, you know, I I didn't have any head for mathematics. Hence why I'm not even in financial institutions, right? Um, So I, I had to give up on that one. But but really being clear on what we want to be is a critical thing for each and every one of us to be able to fulfill the life that we want to lead. And we often don't
0: do that. The book behind me, (laughs) I I talk about that very thing in there. Um, And uh, yeah, it's, it's really interesting that we're having this conversation because I I talk about strategy. I, um, I was highly motivated to learn as much about strategy as possible. Like, uh, when I, when I left the fire service in 2019 and I had come across, um, the, the grand strategy program at Yale. And I started reading about that. There's, I don't know I want to say there's three or four books on it that are pretty well-written and, um, it's, it's, typically a program that future world leaders or even there's uh there's officers in you know the the armed forces that will take time to go and and spend in this program um it's i want to say it's a year-long program Mm. and and what it does is it develops these young leaders to have big picture thinking and they, you know, they read all the greats, you know, the, uh, the art of war on war by Klaus, Fitz, uh, the Prince by Machiavelli. And it was interesting. It was a lot of the same books that uh, I want to say is on the, the reading list at the army war college. Um, right. For sure. But uh, I, I got really interested in it and, and thought you could apply those same principles to your life and tried to come up with a formula that would be easy enough to explain and walk somebody through and put it in the book. It's, uh, okay. but, um, I, I want to dig in more, uh, to your book and, and really what, what motivated you to write your book? That's a great question, uh, Dave. And
1: I, I think, you know, there are three things, There are three core elements to me in the, in the book. And that is, one is, is that the need for a profession of managerial leadership, and the profession of arms in the military, we have accountants, we have this, we have that. Yet the one common role throughout is managerial leadership. And we it's often done on the side of our desk. You know I want to go back to being this accountant, this great accountant or this great h r person or operations person. I'm not really interested, oh, gosh, I've got to deal with these people, and I got to do this. I'd much rather just count spread you know count count beans or spreadsheets or whatever, right? So really getting to a point where there is this profession and thinking of it as a profession, Because the impact that you're having on people's lives every day is huge. We don't understand the impact that we have as leaders on our people. And so it's absolutely critical to think in terms of this is a profession. And another element to that is is that so the the other piece and what I've tried to bring out in the book is the critical role that the managers of managers play or leaders of leaders. So, so many of the books uh, on leadership and on management talk about leading your team or managing your team. But we don't talk about how different it is to manage managers, to lead leaders. And what are the things that you have to do there? And what are the things you have to look out to and look out for? And so those were the two things that I really wanted to drive home and that, and back to, to what we talked about at the very beginning, that it is actually a journey. And so it's that journey of the profession. But I need someone to help me on that journey. And that's my manager, helps me on that journey. I mean, it's great to have, you know, executive coaches. I don't want to cut my nose to my face here, but you, know, you need your boss to help you through that. And, and the managers of managers out there don't see that as their role. So this now sort of they they sort of tumble back together again and that this is a journey and that it's not a, you know, an inoculation and you're good to go kind of thing. You have to keep building on this and learning as you go. So that was the intent behind the book. Uh, It's a compendium of the work that we've done here at Forest and Company for 30 plus years uh, in leading leaders in all sorts of different industries and all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different nations. But it's really, that's the core of experiences with clients. Because in Canada, we have a very different view of the military than you have in the US. And so for a long time, I never talked about my military background. I never talked about my military experiences. And, uh, so this is kind of, this is kind of opening it up and that's how I've integrated the two stories a bit, but, uh, but it's the same, the same issues. It's all about human beings and, and how we deal with human beings and how we work with human beings and how we get them to get the task and the people together. So, uh, so I'm I'm sort of bringing this to the forefront now, whereas before one kept it kind of hidden and you didn't talk about it and that sort of thing.
0: So that's the other part. Can you explain that to me? I mean, because I, I, I was not aware of that. It's um, yeah, it, it's it, uh, it, it's been an
1: interesting it's been an interesting experience and and part of it is is because we don't have the same martial Perspective. You know, we have a very, very small force. Very few people have served. Now the war in Afghanistan, our longest, uh, our longest conflict ever, uh, has produced a, a new round of veterans. Uh, but uh, but by and large, most Canadians don't have any experience with the military. In fact, their ideas of the military are based on Hollywood movies and you know those sort of things. So that's their attitude and their perspective and so understanding uh, understanding how the profession of arms has looked at leadership uh, is something that's completely foreign to to Canadians. Uh, so that 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 was the uh, sort of the intent behind behind it all. and and so much of what has happened um, in well, just in the last in the last ten, fifteen years, uh, around well, the nature of conflict in Afghanistan uh, brought it to the forefront, and of course, we're reliving it now with the, the war in Ukraine. Um, and just just understanding the, the the nature of human beings and humanity um, is uh, has has changed things. And I, and I think COVID as well, uh, while it gave leaders an opportunity to be better leaders. Um, I would hope that that will continue uh, because they 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 really had to focus there. But I also think that uh, that there's still a lot for us to to learn from just what we've gone through in the last couple of years. Now that's sort of a meandering uh, a meandering answer to uh, to to where the book's from, but uh, but it it's um, it's it is it too is a journey And we're going through. I think uh, an interesting journey in in Western civilization right now, um, as we as we try to understand uh, where where we've been, and now where we're going. I think uh, COVID taught us more than anything else the need for good thinking, because we couldn't rely on anyone's experience, unless. Unless you were around in 1919 in the Spanish flu, <laughs> there was nothing to go on. So you couldn't rely on your experience. You had to be able to think things through. So, so hopefully that will that will spur on careful thought and thinking. And hopefully it will also uh, make us realize just how fragile humanity actually is.
0: One of the things that you've touched on a couple of times is the the leaders of managers or managers of managers. And I'm wondering what are some of the common issues that managers of managers um, experience that your book addresses? Well, I, um, I think probably
1: the first and foremost is, is that um, I steal a, a uh, a phrase from from a great military commander, uh, Field Marshal Viscount Slim, and uh, he he had a comment uh, at the end of the Second World War, there are no bad regiments, only bad officers. so my my variation on that is there are no bad organizations, only bad managers. because it isn't the organization. The organization takes its lead from management from the leaders inside the organization. And so the pain that is inside the organization is as a direct result of our leaders not fixing things, for want of a better term. And so that's a common problem. And managers of managers have to get on top of that. Now, sometimes they don't want to hear about the pain because in all likelihood they cause the pain, right? So, So they'd much rather just keep blind to it but it's it's critical because it gets in the way of people being successful. And I know given your your background, you'll appreciate this. Um, in In the book, I talk about uh, something that's just sort of coming to the forefront, um, and that is the nature of sanctuary trauma. So, I spend my entire day in this workplace, or I spend my entire energies working for this company. And if there are problems in the company any of the pro I I have nowhere to go, I have nowhere to get away from it, and so just as as we found, uh, particularly in the first responder community, some of the, the highest issues of of trauma reaction and post traumatic stress are as a result of sanctuary trauma, where I've survived the trauma of the fire or the ambulance call or the police call, and then I go back into a workplace that doesn't care for me, and that's the nature of sanctuary trauma, and I think there's a variation of that that will impact all businesses, not just first responders, it will impact all businesses because I've survived COVID, and I come back to the workplace, and the workplace doesn't care about me now that's linking in some of the some of the elements of mental well-being but i think in the last 10 15 years mental well-being has come to the forefront for for everyone uh it's a, it's a it's an important initiative uh you mentioned wounded warriors well so wounded warriors in canada has been predominantly well actually all, all but in the early cases is is about post-traumatic stress disorder Um, we have a very as you're probably well aware you know we have a an extensive uh, healthcare system that takes care of physical injuries but we didn't have clarity on the mental injuries that were occurring so the unseen injuries that occurred and that's that's the role of wounded warriors canada was to bring that to the forefront and now we're not we're we're not just a charity that uh, that that uh, goes out and and finds things for people. We're actually delivering uh, programs around mental well-being, and it started with veterans and then their families, and then what we found was that there was a tremendous need in the first responder community. So. So the fire, ambulance, and police services didn't have any of these these programs. So a lot of our programs now are directed towards, now it's even further, it's uniformed services. Uh, In Canada, our Coast Guard is different than the Coast Guard in the U.S., but we're now taking taking into account Coast Guard um, and and correction services. Uh, These people that, that go through trauma day to day, but they have no outlet. And it's important to care for those families because the families are the ones that suffer the most uh, in post-traumatic stress.
0: How did you get involved with the Wounded Warriors?
1: That's a great question. I will, uh, I don't think I'll ever forget the the first instance where I was introduced to Wounded Warriors Canada and the work that they were doing. And I was asked to go to, a, to an off site that they were having. And they had brought together a group of reservists. So reservists in Canada uh, a quarter of all deployments into Afghanistan for us were reservists and they were outside the wire and they were inside the wire. So they were seeing all sorts of things and and listening to the stories from these reservists about how they did six months of workup training. They did six months deployment and they went into their basements and they stayed, they didn't hang out with their buddies because in most cases, not all their buddies went to Afghanistan with them. Very few did. And so they suddenly found themselves kind of trapped and isolated. And so from that point, I went, "Wow, these guys are are really getting to a, a real time issue." And then it's just been a matter of time, as I learned from there. And then they came to me when I retired from the military and said, "Well, you've been an ardent supporter. Why don't you join our board?" Uh, and uh, that was a very easy, easy question to answer because um, the, the work that they do, uh, day in day out, is saving lives on many different on many different levels. So.
0: Was it through Wounded Warriors Project that you got involved with the Canadian Rangers?
1: Well, the Rangers the Rangers is another, is another initiative. Uh, again, it comes from my military background. So the Canadian Rangers uh, in, in certain parts of the country are predominantly First Nations or Aboriginal. And, um, and so these are the most operational of anyone in the Canadian Forces. They because they go out and you know, a, a boat capsizes. The guys are out fishing in a flying community way up in the north. And a boat capsizes, they're the guys that go in and, and help them out and you know and find and find them more. There's a snowstorm and someone gets stranded. They're the ones that go out. So they're continually in the field. And uh, one of the facets of the rangers is there's a junior ranger program. And one of the the elements of the junior ranger program is, is it's about helping to reconnect these young uh, uh, aboriginal youth with the land and and their their backgrounds but in order for these kids to go on in school they have to be flown out of their community live in a group home in a city and be completely disconnected from the land and, and where they came from. Um, and because our, our communities, there's no roads into them there, except for maybe an ice road in the middle of winter, so they have to fly in. So part of the work of the Ranger Foundation was to reconnect uh, when they when they went into these uh, into these difficult situations because it makes them youth at risk. So that was that was the germination of of the Ranger Foundation was to, was to do that and what has become more so now is is making people aware of what the rangers actually do and 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 the role that they play in these northern communities in these far off and and they go all the way up to the high arctic the, the rangers uh, themselves so um it's uh yeah it's uh, they're amazing amazing individuals um So how did you get
0: involved with them?
1: Well, my, my job, my, my last job was, I I was kind of the, um, my leadership role was to, was to keep an eye on the Rangers uh, in Ontario. Um, And so I've spent time up, up North with them. Um, you know, creating a good laugh for them because I'd you know, minus fifty degrees Celsius weather and it 'd be fully bundled and they 'd be out there in their sweatshirts and all this sort of stuff or or i 'd go off on a snowmobile and, and fly off into the ditch and they 'd just go oh they'd just <laughs> shake their heads and uh, you know that sort of thing but um, the, uh, my My job was to was to work with them and to, and to uh, to help them. Um, and so I realized that we could we could do more in helping them uh, and I could do more outside of the military as well. So that was the intent.
0: You say your last job that you were involved with and that was through the Canadian Armed Forces? Yeah, through the
1: Canadian Armed Forces. Yeah. When I was um, when I was a deputy commander of uh, our joint task force, uh, here in uh, in Ontario, so uh, that was part of part of my job.
0: Um, Many of the things that we were just talking about really points to you not just talking the talk, but you've walked the walk. You've experienced these things. and the the one thing that caught my eye was the enlightened leader and the engaged manager, right? So,
1: the, the foundation of the enlightened leader is to me is this authentic servant and transformational leadership. So exercising those and it's needed now more than ever. So it is about coming out of the darkness, just like the enlightenment age of coming out of the darkness that, uh, that has, uh, has overcome us, you know, cause we, really we were all about the task and you know make as much money as possible and all those sort of things and then i think so certainly COVID was was the start of the shift right because we had to take care of those people and so so leaders had to become more enlightened they had to be thinking more broadly and and the leaders of leaders need to lead their people to be more enlightened, to be more authentic to be more servant to be more transformational it can't just say it's over to you to do that all on your own the their managers their leaders have to help them to do that so that's the nature of the enlightened leader the engaged manager on the other hand, is the task side of things. So it's about carefully defining the work and the expectations of the work for the individuals. And just as important as defining the work or the accountabilities is what are the authorities that the individual needs? What are the authorities they need to be able to have over other people's work? Because that's often the struggle, you know. Not all the work goes up and down in the organization. In fact, most in most organizations it goes laterally. So, how do I? What is the authority that I have over others in order to be able to to fulfill the tasks that you've given me? And what is the expectation of my work? So, setting context and defining. What is the the work of the team? And then working on how do I delegate the work so that I'm not telling you how to do it, but I'm telling you what I need you to do. And then monitoring and coaching people to help them through that, all the while continuously improving. Because that's what management really needs to focus on is continuous improvement. That's the role of management. Only managers can do that you can't expect your direct reports to continuously improve cuz they'll be continuously improving and you won't know what they're up to right <laughs> they need to come back to you and say this is what i need this is what needs to be fixed here yeah. and we we often don't look at continuous improvement through that lens we see it as big programs and this and that it's basic fundamental of management that managers practice continuous improvement they get best advice from their people. So we talk extensively about best advice, which is that honest feedback. And back to way back to when we were talking about accountability and versus responsibility, the nature of best advice is it's an accountability. I hold you to account to give me your best advice. It can't be based on your sense of responsibility because those with great courage will stand up and say, hey, this is wrong. No, we need to hear from you and I need to demand best advice from you. By the same token, and this is where the engaged uh, manager and the enlightened leader sort of comes together. If I am inauthentic as a leader, I will not want to hear that best advice, right? I will shy away from that, and I will not accept that because if I'm not an enlightened leader, I don't see that as I'm helping the organization, I'm being servant and helping you, and I don't see it as being transformational. So the two have to come together, the engaged manager and the enlightened leader. And and the mechanism of that truly is this notion of giving your manager your best advice. And when you as one, as one CEO said, um, he was a CEO of a a multinational uh, financial institution. He said, "Those moments of best advice, I love, but I hate them because I got to put my tin hat on because those bullets are coming straight at me because it's something that I did wrong. But the organization has to have that. And back to our point around, you can't be perfect. It is a journey." and you have to be continually on that journey.
0: Your company consults with these large corporations and and helps them create this environment where what you're talking about can occur. And I feel like what you do is kind of manage a, a shift in culture. it, is that it
1: accurate? It, it absolutely is. Uh, but the shifted culture can't happen if the boss isn't behind it. Right. And too often organizations say, well, we want this, but we're not willing to be disciplined and to put it in because it requires change. Yeah. And, and understanding that dynamic of change for people. And again, we're back to the manager of managers or the role of my manager or my, or my leader is, is to help me through the change, to show me the way through the change. Because naturally human beings do not embrace change. We lean on our old way of doing things. That makes us whole. Uh, the analogy I draw is, uh, you know, if you're wondering about where did I come up with that, think of the the new hire that you've seen in an organization. What do they talk about for the first 18 months? How it was in the old place, because that makes them feel whole. And they hang on to that. And some people are more willing to embrace change. There's no doubt. But we have to understand that there is a natural human reaction that we lean on our old way of doing things. And our managers have to help us with to overcome that.
0: For those listening that would like to have you come and and speak to their organization or... Uh, just connect with you, uh, purchase your book? What's the best way for them to, to do that?
1: Well, the, um, there are two, uh, two avenues to that. Uh, the managerialleadershipjourney.com, which is related to the book. There, I get to show my book. So there you go. Um, <laughs> as well as forestandco.com. Uh, which is the Forest and Company, uh, the company website um, is uh, is the best way to get it. It's available on amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com, target.com, all sorts of uh, all sorts of different venues, but it is the Managerial Leadership Journey is and, the name of the book.
0: And for Forest and Company, what are some of the different um, programs that you offer to corporations?
1: Well, we we offer, uh, I suppose, our flagship program is a is a public program that is a year-long leadership journey in and of itself. It's called the Leadership Path, and we take high potential individuals for the first five days. So it's five days offsite where we really run them through the paces of leadership and understanding how they are perceived inside the organization through 360 feedback and then through some experiential learning and then uh, we have a period of coaching over the space of the year and then we teach them the basics of management so you're getting both the leadership and the management but uh, but we have a yeah, after after 35 years we have a lot of different programs and we tend to build to the needs of the organization so while we have lots of off-the-shelf stuff, part of it is understanding the nature of your organization, the nature of your organizational pain, and then determining what is the right hit at the right moment uh, to, to best help the organization to create a great place to work that delivers the strategy. And that's the, that's the fundamental premise of it all. And our clients have, uh, have been with us uh, you know, some 20 plus years. Uh, I've been clients with us and, and, you know, sudden they go through the the ups and downs and all that sort of thing, but, uh, um, it is about, it really is about what are the needs of the organization. So, um, it, it isn't necessarily a cookie cutter approach. And then on the effective intelligence piece, we, um, we, we, uh, help people to understand their thinking intentions. Through a profiling system, through effective intelligence, and then how to then make decisions and solve problems. So that's another sort of packaged approach, uh, which is advantage, which has an advantage for the individual but also for the team. Because the one thing that uh, that I have to say about thinking is, is that it is the ultimate diversity. I have yet to find two people in the same organization after twenty years with exactly the same thinking profile, which means that we all look at the same things, but we process them differently. And so understanding that, that the core of diversity is in diverse thinking is essential. It's, it's that we are all different and being able to embrace that diversity of thought is critical for the success of our organizations and critical for the success of the planet quite frankly, so so it's about it's about understanding those. So those are, that sort of gives you a smattering of the, the types of approaches, but uh, certainly of late in the post COVID era, a lot of the work has been around how do you structure the work down? How do you structure the work? How many layers do we need in the organization? How do we interrelate the work across? And that's the management side.
0: Do you have all these programs outlined on your website? We do, we do, exactly. So it's, uh, uh,
1: as well as the, as the forest team. So we have 30 plus members of the forest team that uh, that range for, with all sorts of experiences from uh, former CEOs, CFOs, heads of HR, uh, risk experts, uh, you name it. Um, so to, uh, to be able to assist our clients And the point is, is that it's about being able to assist the clients and helping to build the internal capability inside the organization. While we have long-term relationships, the best part of the long-term relationship is seeding those things and letting them nurture and grow on their own inside the organization and being there to help when needed. So that's an important part and that's a part of our belief system.
0: Julian, I, I can't thank you enough for joining me today and walking through your book and, and telling your story. Um, and, you know, thank you for your work with the Wounded Warrior Project, and uh, this awesome. It was a it was an honor to meet you and, yeah. and to learn from you. So appreciate it.
1: Well, the honor all mine, Dave. And I, I i don't think I've ever actually talked this much. I feel rather uncomfortable about not asking you a bunch of questions. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: Well, you know, now you've got to start your own podcast and have me on. There we go. There we go. <laughs> You're on. And
1: I want to read your book, actually. I want to read uh, that perspective. So, uh, so tit for tat, as they
0: say. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit HollenbachLeadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, Please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts, linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.